0: Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 14, as we continue in the book of Luke. We'll be in the last portion of Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Many churches have what they call, and we are like them, uh, inquirers' classes. An inquirer's class is for those who, you know, you're attending the church for a while, but you want to know a little bit more about it. you speak just called new members classes, but uh, we'd rather use a word that you don't understand so that you have to ask what it means. But So the inquirer's class is to, to answer questions about the church, maybe the history of the church, the vision and mission of the church. More than that, though, it's to also answer questions about expectations. You know, if you're going to join a local congregation, what what can you expect from that local congregation? And maybe more importantly... What do they expect from you? What are the expectations laid on you? Now, we haven't had an inquirer's class here at Hope of Christ in quite some time. We've been meeting with folks who want to join and just kind of meet with them individually. But if you're not a member and you're curious, I'd love to start up an inquirer's class with you if you'd like to talk about church membership. Now, it's been sort of a trend, at least in American churches, to... Uh, to really make membership in the church, or more than that, to make Christianity itself a a very cost-efficient activity. Uh, The church, at least in the, the American church, has really sold, in many ways, Christianity as just a, hey, this is, it's Jesus paid it all, It is covered, it is easy, just come in and believe, and and your life will be wonderful, and it'll go better for you, and you'll get taller, your teeth will get straighter and whiter, Uh, hair will come back in areas you want it, it'll disappear in areas you didn't want it, all because you follow Jesus faithfully. Now, that's a little bit of hyperbole. But if Jesus were to run our inquirer's class and someone in the class asked, well, what, what exactly does it look like to follow you? Uh, this is what he would say. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Luke chapter 14. Beginning in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? Going out to encounter another king in a war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So three times Jesus repeats this this idea, this notion of what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Three times he says, if you do not blank, you cannot be my disciple. If you won't hate everyone you love, if you won't bear your own cross, If you won't renounce everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. So ready? Who's going to? Let's all sign up. We'll sign in. We'll let's do it. This sounds fun. This sounds great, doesn't it? What is it that Jesus is calling for? You know, the passage before this, we saw how Jesus really does not shy away from offending people. He's invited to a man's dinner, so he, he offends him and his colleagues. Then he offends all the guests. Then he offends the man as the host of the party. Then he offends just an innocent bystander who's trying to give a toast. Like, he just challenges all of them, and, and it doesn't end there. He leaves, he goes out, and now there's crowds following Jesus. And Jesus just does not follow the marketing advice like he's getting crowds and constantly throughout the gospels. You see Jesus saying things that almost seem intentional about driving people away or at least about causing them to think long and hard about what it means to follow him. So first he talks about talks about your family, your life, your stuff or possessions First, your family. He says, you must hate your own father and mother and wife and child and brother and sister and even your own self. Literally, self is psyche, soul. You must hate your own soul in order to or else you can't be my disciple. So obviously, once we realize that's what he's talking about, it can't be a literal statement that he's talking about, but we also don't want to just undermine what he's saying by saying, well, obviously, it's not literally, because who who could possibly do that? And I know that most of you are sitting here, and some of you are like, okay, so hate everyone, hate myself, and then I can follow Christ. So half of you are thinking, man, I'm halfway there. (laughs) Man, I got this. I hate everyone. As one DJ famously put it, I'm not prejudiced. I hate everyone. And you're thinking, yeah, I, I think I got this. Now the other half of you, less humorously, also feeling like, oh, yeah, I got this. I hate myself. I can do this. Is this what Jesus is talking about? It's more a statement of, of primacy, of what's primary, what's the most important thing In your life, what's the most important relationship in your life? See, we all rank our relationships, or at least you should. You should rank your relationships. You should not love everybody equally. And you're thinking, really? Now let me ask you, do you want me to love your wife as much as I love my wife? I'll bet you don't. Likewise, I don't want you to love my wife as much as you love your wife. There is a primacy. There's, a pri- There's an order. There's a hierarchy of relationships. And often the relationship, that hierarchy of relationships, the higher relationships define what those lower relationships look like. And if you mess that up, it screws up important relationships, doesn't it? If your relationship at work and with colleagues takes primary position over your relationship with your wife and your children, that screws up your home life. I know that this is going to sound somewhat controversial, but if your relationship with your children takes primary position over your relationship with your spouse, you actually screw up your household. I told my kids regularly, I love your mom most. I love your mom more than I love you. Amy would tell them regularly, or at least show them regularly, this was... These were glorious days when you're young and it doesn't matter what you eat, but like on Fridays when there was dessert night, like a quarter of the pie would be put in front of me after dinner and the kids would be up in arms and they're like, why, why does he get so much? And she would always say, cause he's dad, cause he's your daddy and daddy gets more. (laughs) And I was like, this is awesome. (laughs) Why did I not want kids? We rank our relationships. We're supposed to. Jesus is saying, I'm not just one among your other good relationships. I'm the most important relationship you can have. And if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to sacrifice other relationships for your relationship with me, you will be willing to sacrifice your relationship with me for those relationships. I I have a friend who it just, it seems like his concern for his adult children is so great that he's not even going to church anymore because... He just doesn't want to offend them. He wants to make sure he goes to a church that these adult children would possibly go to. And so as a result, that relationship shows that it is the primary relationship. And he is walking away from Christ because he's so worried about offending his children. Jesus says, if if I'm not first, I won't really be in your life at all. Your love for me must define and direct your love for everyone else. Even your love for yourself. Obviously, as Jesus tells us to care for our souls, and specifically by bringing them to Christ because it's the only way to be saved, he's obviously not saying literally you must hate your soul. He's saying like, what you think makes you you? You need to be willing to let go of, because I I am not I'm not just here to kind of sprinkle a little Jesus flavoring over your life. I am here to revamp your entire life so that everything is about me. And when we uh, when we were looking at a similar passage of this in Mark. Over 10 years ago, so most of you weren't here. uh, The night after I preached this passage, I was putting Myra to bed. And as I was walking out of the bedroom, she said, Dad, does Jesus really want us to love God more than our family? I said, He does. And she said, that's hard. I said, boy, you're not lying. It's really hard. You know, the, the quaint illustration I used then was about uh, my undershirts. So I'm an undershirt kind of guy. It's, you know, no worries if you're not. It's more because I'm very self-conscious about stinking. I hate wearing an outer shirt that smells like me. So I will wear an undershirt, almost always. I don't have to wash my outer shirts nearly as often because I wash my undershirts regularly. Well, by I, I mean my undershirts get magically washed. So I don't want to make it sound better than I am. But they're all white. All my undershirts are white. And at least I think they're white until Christmas Day. Because every Christmas day, I get a pack of undershirts. Uh, just a pack of three. Apparently, that's supposed to mean that I find the three ugliest ones and throw them away. It just means that I have undershirts in two or three drawers now. But, and I assume they're white until I get the new undershirts. And then I realize well over half of my undershirts are anything but white. Uh, they might be ecru. They might be eggshell. Some of them are pushing taupe. Uh, But when they're alone, they look white. Jesus is saying, the love you have for me, this other love, like it should pale. I mean, it should look like hatred in comparison to your devotion to me. If that's not enough, it's not just your love of your loved ones. It's just the comfort of your life. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you know that every New Testament book, from the Gospels to Revelation, and every letter in between, contains either examples of suffering, or warnings about suffering, or promises that you will suffer, or encouragement and support for times of suffering, and sometimes all of those. The idea that Christians, especially new believers, especially in the United States, expect that becoming a Christian guarantees me my best life now, it's not just a mark against the church, it's a mark against the shepherds of God's church. That we would sell you a Christianity that throughout the entire New Testament says we'll be full of suffering. We'll be full of loss. we be full of trouble and heartache and tribulation. And you need to be ready for that. Too many of us have these these kind of sacred stones in our lives. I will follow you as long as, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Or I will follow you until this happens. Or I'll follow you unless. And maybe we don't know what those sacred stones are until, until they're gone until something happens. You know, in the Old Testament, in the tab- the tabernacle and the temple, there was that room, that square room, the Holy of Holies. And no one was allowed in there except one priest once a year. But that room was sacred beyond all rooms. And like it had, it had the Ark of the Covenant in there. And, and like, and it was this special room. Everyone knew it existed, but they also knew they weren't allowed in it. And I wonder if you and I come to Christ with our own Holy of Holies. You can go everywhere. You can go anywhere. You have full access except this. Don't touch this. Don't do this. It's one thing to like make this all sound like it's all about suffering just in general. Uh, the reality is that Jesus is literally talking about persecution that leads to death. Like he's saying, unless you are willing daily to die for my sake, you can't be my disciple. I mean, people then weren't listening to Jesus as saying, well, I wonder what my cross is. No, their cross was the, a cross. It was a, a literal carry a beam of your execution and die because the government is against you and what you believe. And so many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world, this, these verses make complete sense of a willingness to die for their faith. And will we, would you die for your faith? Would you be fired for your faith? Will we get to a point where membership in a church that preaches according to Scripture is membership in a hate group? And how will that affect clearances here in our congregation? To find out that you are a member of a hate group, would that impact your clearance level? And would it just be easier to erase your name from the rolls? I mean, I'll still come, but I mean, I need to not be marked as a Christian right now. It wouldn't be good for the church. You know, I, I, I give and it would be bad for the church. What? Jesus says, listen, it's more more than your physical well-being following me. He says, you really need to consider the cost. You need to consider what it is to follow Christ. He says, look, a man building a tower. How many of you, if you were building a tower, you wouldn't at least figure out what it costs? Figure out the monetary cost, the time commitment, the skills needed. And if you figured out, if, if you didn't analyze those and you got halfway through the project, like you'd be the laughingstock of the neighborhood. This was like a weirdly convicting illustration. As I have far too many projects at home that are anywhere from 60 to 75% complete. And at least I'm only the laughingstock to my wife. Because it's not outside in the vineyards, but... He says, look, I mean, just think about it. Like, if you're not, if you don't have what it takes to f- get to the end of the project, how ridiculous is it? I started looking up uh, bridges, bridge projects that got halfway completed and and didn't ever make it. And they become, they become this testament and testimony to the ineptitude of that government. He says, or a king preparing for battle. You know, you're heading off to war. You look around, you've got 10,000 troops. You find out he's got 20,000 troops. It's time to assess the abilities of your troops. I mean, are they Marines? Are they Coast Guard? You've got to figure this out pretty quickly because then you're going to have to... I don't think anyone here is in the Coast Guard, are they? You're new, you're not in the Coast Guard, are you? <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with it. Anyway, but you get to 20,000 and, and you better figure it out. If, if you don't have what it takes, you, this would be a good time to ask for peace. Good time to send a delegation. Say, hey, we don't need to fight. Let's, let's work this out. He says, count the cost. Consider the cost. It's, just, you know, your relationships your own self, even your stuff. The stuff that God has blessed you with, the stuff that is a gift from Him. He says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Your family, yourself, your comfort, your life, your stuff. So this is where we have to take a step back and say the odd claim that Jesus is a good man and a good teacher and nothing more than that if it doesn't die anywhere else in Scripture it dies right here like how many of you had good teachers like can remember a good teacher you had hey FYI, if you're homeschooled, your hand should be up. (laughs) I'm just saying, you are in for a world of hurt if your hand isn't up saying, I had the best teacher ever. You have a good teacher, teachers that have a great influence on you. They teach you to like, like, they, they just, they inspire you. Imagine you go to that teacher and, and she or he, a professor or a grade school teacher says, listen, one more thing. You need to love me more than you love your mommy and daddy if you want me to teach you anything else. Sound like a good teacher still? Like, no, no, it sounds a little, little egotistical, a little megalomaniac maybe. You have a a good teacher, a good philosopher doesn't say you need to love me more than your family. You need to love me more than your own life. You have to love me more than your stuff. And then I'll be your good and inspiring teacher. That's Jesus can't be a good teacher if this is what he calls his students to unless he's more than a good teacher a person who tells you you need to love them more than you love your mom and dad, that's not a healthy relationship unless they're in one of those positions that is higher than your mom or dad. So a wife rightly says to her husband, you need to love me more than your mom. A husband says to his, well, no, that one doesn't really work as well. No, it does. It does. A husband should say to his wife, you need to love me more than your mom also. No. You need to love me more than your dad. Like we are, we're building something here. This is the primary relationship. If Jesus says you need to love me more than anyone in your family, you need to love me more than your own self, you need to love me more than everything I've provided for you, It must be because he's somewhere above those things in relation to you. It becomes weird then when we say that in the Gospels, Jesus never claimed to be God. Because what is this other than that? I mean, Exodus 20, verse 2, at Mount Sinai, God says to the Israelites, I have saved you, I have delivered you, have no other gods before me. I'm primary. This statement of following Christ is nothing if it is not a rewording of the first commandment and applying it directly to himself. I'm primary because I'm God. Love me. Love me more than others. Love me more than self. Love me more than stuff. Also, let's remember that Jesus isn't calling you to do anything he didn't do for you. Love me more than the comfort of your relationships and more than yourself. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. In 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us To God, first Peter two. this to this, you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. We're called to take up our cross. Jesus took up his cross first for you and me. First Peter two, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Philippians two, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus calls us to renounce all that we own. Second Corinthians eight nine, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty could become rich. It's not a question of consider the cost. It's a question of consider the worth. What is the value? What is the value of being saved from your sin? What is the value of? Of the love of Christ shown to you at the cross. How much does God deserve for creating and then pursuing and then saving and then sustaining you? What does He deserve as far as our love? You know, in some instances, we're called on in Scripture to forsake our families, like this says. In other instances, we're called on to bring our families to Christ, bring them into the fellowship. You see both of those. In some instances, you're told to bear your own cross. In other instances, you're told to bear each other's burdens, to carry one another's burdens for each other. We're called on to forsake all things, and yet we're also called on to receive all things from God's hand. We're told to give all things to others, and we're told that we've been put in charge of our master's belongings. We're called on to come and serve serve the Lord. And then when we get there, we realize that the Lord has come and served you. Discipleship is both giving and receiving. Not everyone is called to the same discipleship. Not everyone has, is called to the same cost. You know, the grace that is needed to face the trials and struggles and sufferings that you are called to is not necessarily the grace that's going to be given to someone else for that same thing because they don't need that because they're not facing that. There are things that some of you have faced that I'm overwhelmed with. By what you've gone through. And yet God has given you sustaining grace to carry you through that. And I know that many of you feel that same way for my family and what we have been through. And sometimes it feels like, well, I I don't understand. I, I would never be able to do that. And it's like, well, but that's God gives grace as grace is needed. The grace that he gives us for one another is the grace of just coming alongside, of just caring for each other, of just being there or not being there, of being available. Even as we're called on to bear our cross daily. And it could be that you get through all these things and you think, well, that's I'm doing pretty good then if I do these things. And that's why the, the, weird, the weird parable at the end here. It's not just your family and, and yourself and your stuff. You also need to remember your flavor. Like as you're going through these things, what do you taste like? You know, Amy's always telling me that I need to connect the dots. I need to always, like, make sure that, like, if I'm going to say something, I need to, cause, like, in her words, cause these people are idiots. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't, no, I know, she doesn't say that. She just says that, cause, cause you can't just leave it out there. But I, I am encouraged that there are times that Jesus just drops these truth bombs, and his connecting of the dots is, listen, if you have ears, listen. <laughs> he tells his parable here, And it's just like all of a sudden, like all of a sudden Jesus worried about our salt intake. That was a little random, Jesus. But he says, listen, salt, but salt in the first century had the same purpose as salt in the 21st century. I mean, there were two just boring reasons for salt, and they still exist. For preserving food, so it kind of slows down the decaying process. The putrefying process, you can salt your meats and they'll last a little longer. They don't last forever, but they'll last longer. And then also flavoring. It, it enhances flavor, brings out the good flavors of food. And salt that loses its saltiness, do you know what you call salt that isn't salty? Sand. And anyone who's been forced to eat a lunch at the beach knows how awesome your lunch is when you get sand all over it. It's awful. It's not just that the sand should be thrown out and trampled. The whole meal needs to be thrown out and trampled. It's disgusting. It's a horrible experience eating sand-covered food. And salt that isn't even salty is, is useless. And I know the whole chemical compound, the whole, you know, salt can't technically lose its saltiness, actually, Leonard. That's okay, because, like, the salt they used to get was from marshes and from, like, the Dead Sea, and so it was filled with impurities, and it would get stacked up and stocked and stored, and eventually, like, the salt would leach out of it. And so then all you had was you're just pouring impurities on your food. Doesn't that sound yummy? Um, Salt that loses its saltiness is just gross. And Jesus says, listen, you, by your lives, are the salt of the earth. You, you, you exist to, to just slow down the decaying process in the world. You exist to just bring some flavor to a flavorless world. And as you do this, people see your good works as matthew said and they will glorify god in heaven as we die to ourselves and as we as we as we reorient our relationships so that christ is preeminent said so he's more important than than your people he's more important than your yourself he's more important than your stuff people will see that and they'll be drawn to Christ through the flavor of that. This is what Jesus says it looks like to follow me. And again, you're following me because I've already done this. I'm not just pointing. I'm saying, come follow me. Die to yourself as I have died for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you you use hard words and we're we're thankful that it calls us up short Jesus i want to love you that much Bottom line is uh, our, our love is challenged or we're just not convinced that the person we're loving is good. And so help us to see your goodness, to see your worth and worthiness of that kind of love from us. Help us to see the love you have shown us that you loved us first so that we could love you make us make us salt that would be preserving and flavorful that others would glorify you our father in heaven in Jesus name Amen.